Well, to set the stage for Genesis chapter 3, Moses has given us two creation stories, uh, which seems to some to be odd, misplaced, uh, but Moses had a purpose in giving two accounts of creation. The first account to show that God is sovereign, God is in control, God doesn't create chaos, he creates order, and to show that God creates humanity, male and female, in his image, the crown of his creation. And in chapter 1, humankind receives the instruction from God, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And there are many ways that applies to our daily lives when it comes to discipleship in the home, schooling, when it comes to the way that we do church and structure our churches and do ministry, Uh, when it comes to plurality of elders, we can make application in all those areas. And in chapter 2, Moses hones in on the creation of woman, the helpmate of the man, the woman who is the picture of Christ's church, the picture of humanity here at the beginning. She is the object of redemption and the part of God's image that shows how God wants to relate to his people. And at the end of chapter 2, God says this through Moses, this is Verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2. For this reason, man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife, setting us up here for chapter 3, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were fully exposed to each other. Physically, yes, but also spiritually and emotionally. And they were fully exposed before God. Without clothes, yes, but also spiritually and emotionally. And they felt no shame before each other, and they felt no shame before God. And then we get here to chapter 3. And I will read the first 13 verses this morning. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the tree, from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves lowen coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the account of the very first sin humanity ever committed against God. A sin committed by Adam and Eve, what we refer to as original sin. It is this sin that plunged humanity into a cursed estate, into a wretched estate. It is this sin that we are liberated from in Christ. Uh, this is the this is the beginning of the end, right here. Genesis chapter 3. Of course, the end is really also a beginning. Uh, so, I guess we'll just live forever, which is cool with me. But we don't have that without original sin. And when it comes to original sin, I think God was working together a, uh, a very good purpose, even in the sin of humanity. Some people will present Genesis chapter 3 like... It's all only ever bad, terrible news, and this is why humanity is so terrible, and, and indeed it is why people do terrible things, right? Um, at least it's the first terrible thing anyone did, revealing our unrighteousness, which causes the rest of our terrible things. But I don't want to focus on that. Instead, I want to focus this morning on what God is doing here. Oh, why? Why is Genesis 3 necessary for God to establish his creation, to establish his people as his image, as representative rulers on the earth? Which is the point of Genesis 1 and 2, so it's not inappropriate to read Genesis 3 that way, because that's what Genesis 1 and 2 point us to, like God created us to to fill the earth and subdue it. How does Genesis 3 accomplish that end or work to accomplish that end? A very important question to ask, and we'll consider that as we move through the text. Verse 1 here in chapter 3, now the serpent. Moses introduces a new character. So we already have Adam and Eve. We have the birds of the air and, and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the earth and creeping and crawling things upon the earth. And now there is a a new, a particular character being presented before Moses' audience, before us. And it is a serpent. Now you gaze through ancient Near East literature other than the Bible. Literature that was produced before Genesis, prior to Genesis, by any number of sources. Mesopotamian literature, Egyptian literature, literature from the Middle East, and you'll, you'll normally see a serpent appear at the very beginning of the story. And Moses here, remember, he's writing in that genre. He's writing in the genre of Mesopotamia and Egypt and the Middle East. He's, he's writing almost in satirical form. He's, he's, 
He's using Hebrew wordplay to to do some things. We're going to see that in this text as well in chapter 3. And when he introduces this serpent, those reading or those listening will automatically think, Oh, I have heard about the serpent. This serpent is present in quite a few of our stories. Only in most stories, the serpent isn't the bad guy. In most ancient Near East literature, the the serpent was was the creature that people could, could charm or could trap or could take hold of in order to gain wisdom. Interesting. In order to gain everlasting youth, beauty, health, wealth, and prosperity. And so you read most ancient Near East literature and people are are trying to be friends with the serpent, following the instruction of the serpent. And in this story, Moses paints the serpent in quite a different light, almost as if he's, he's trying to say, y'all, mysticism doesn't work. Serpents aren't actually to be praised and worshipped. All of these things, you're trying to better your own life. It's, it's not actually going to work. Why? Well, Moses is about to tell us here in Genesis chapter 3. He says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And the Lord God there is the same Yahweh Elohim that we have seen. It refers to the singular deity of God, the one God, transcendent essence, and his plurality of persons, Elohim. So, so Yahweh, again, single essence, and Elohim, again, plurality of persons. So that's one essence existing in what we now call Trinity, one God, three persons, which we have seen, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've already seen those persons present in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. When Moses says the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had, had made. He's, he's, he's elevating here the serpent above the other beasts of the field, above the other land animals. He is the, he is the chief beast. He's the craftiest. And immediately here, from the outset of the story, we, we are meant to think about humanity's place in the created order as Moses is talking about the serpent, right? Humanity was created by God as the the chief of his creation. The species on earth that would fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the animals on the land. God created humanity to do this. Humanity is chief, right, on earth. Not above God, though, right? And here Moses, he's talking about the serpent, and all of a sudden he calls the serpent the, the chief of beasts, the, the craftiest beast on land. And so he's, he's drawing now almost this parallel between humanity and the serpent. Which means that eventually in the story, The serpent isn't going to benefit humanity in some way, bring health, wealth, prosperity, and wisdom, and eternal, everlasting youth. Instead, the serpent is going to be pitted against humanity in the story. And Moses is cluing us into that early on. He is doing something very different from 
other ancient Near East texts. He's writing in the same style, but he's showing, I think, the fallacious nature of those other texts, those, those mythologies, those legends. So this serpent is craftier than any beast in the field which the Lord God had made. And he, the serpent, said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now I want you to see what the serpent is doing here. He is creating somewhat of a, of a straw man to, to trap Eve, the woman. Okay? He is taking what God has commanded. Do not eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's God's command from chapter 2, right? And the serpent is coming to Eve, and he's twisting that. He's, he's adding to it. He's like, surely God's not telling you you can't eat from, from any tree in the garden, right? And he's adding to it to encompass to encompass all the, all the fruit in the whole garden, like making God, to be, making God out to be a, a bad guy, like look at all this stuff that God created and he's not letting you have any of it? What kind of God would do that? And I realize people do that today in large, but the Pharisees did it in, in Jesus' day, right? Added to the law of God, placed burdens upon burdens upon burdens upon, uh, upon people, um, forced people into lives of restriction rather than lives of an enjoyment. And even today in the church, rules and rules and rules piled on, restrictions and restrictions piled on that we see nowhere in the text of Scripture. Has God really told you you can't drink anything? You can't enjoy any of that? Has God really told you in 1 Corinthians you read that women ought to be modest and not adorn themselves with with jewelry has God really told you that you can't wear any necklaces or earrings has God really told you that that you can't dress well that you need to look dull has God really said that churches do that right entire denominations do that like pile on these restrictions that actually aren't in scripture because either they just misread the text or want to add so much to it to stay to stay safe when we do that we're doing what the serpent here does has god really told you that you can't eat from any tree of the garden and the woman said to the serpent from the fruit she 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 does her best to correct the serpent right from the fruit of the trees in the garden, we may eat. God didn't say we couldn't eat from any tree. Like, we may eat from the trees in the garden. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now, reminder, what was the command that God gave to Adam that Adam passed to his wife Eve? You shall not eat fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So far as we know from the text, God did not say anything about touching it, right? And there are quite a few people who will here make a big deal about the fact that, oh, Eve's adding to God's words too. Like, Eve was doing something wrong even before she, she, she like, sinned, like, broke God's immediate commandment. And that's one of the things that 
reveals the darkness in her heart that was already present. And, and I, I don't think we can say that from the text. Okay? And we have to know when, especially when we're reading scriptures, just because something isn't written doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Just because it isn't written directly from God's mouth that, that he said, don't touch it, doesn't mean he didn't say it. It also doesn't mean he did say it. We just don't know from the text whether he said that or not. So Eve here, she could be correct in what God said. We just don't have record of that. So it's kind of dangerous to to read into the text or create an argument from absence here and say, God didn't say that. Because we don't know, right? If, it, if everything God did and said were to be written down, there would be no room for us in the universe, okay? It would be full of pages, paper, things written about what God did and said. So not every detail is going to be here. Of course, it also doesn't mean that he did say it. We can't draw either of those conclusions from the text. But Eve, she's, she's doing her best to correct the serpent. From the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. She knows the consequence. And she knows the rest of the fruit is available to enjoy with his goodness. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Would, would, would God really do that to you? He calls the character of God into question. Well, God, being of pure character, being perfect in in nature, he has to follow through with his word. He cannot deny himself. He cannot lie. Yet the serpent is calling that into question. Surely God was fibbing when he told you that you would die if you ate from that tree. That fruit doesn't look poisonous to me, Eve, right? Surely it won't kill you. God knows the serpent continuing. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now tell me, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And when God said, let us create man, how did he create man? And whose image did he create mankind? His. God created human beings according to his kind. So when the serpent here is saying, ah, God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like him. Guess what? Eve is already like God. The serpent is, she's tempt, he's tempting Eve with something Eve already is. And by nature, something that Eve desires to be, the image of God. And perfect righteousness and beauty and goodwill and enjoyment and apparently knowledge, wisdom here. Yet the serpent is using what she already is to tempt her, saying, you can be like God. I want, I want to be like God. But Eve, she's already created in the image of God. But being tempted with being like God, something she already is, she, she's going to give in. Here, it's enough of a temptation for her to say, I want that. 
and to pursue it, even though she already has it. And it's amazing to me that we do the same things in our lives. That the things we already have and are blessed with almost become invisible to us, right? And we find ourselves asking God for more. Saying, God, why haven't you blessed me even though the blessings are clearly right in front of us? All we can see is is what we lack sometimes. And I, I think that's part of our depraved nature from the very beginning. The essential depravity of humankind. This part here about knowing good and evil, though, is very interesting. Like humanity doesn't know good and evil yet. I think humanity already knows good, right? God created the world. By the seventh day, and on the seventh day, he said, it is very good. My creation is very good. There with humanity present, I'm sure, so humanity could hear. People know what good is because God has created it. And people have only experienced good, but they don't know good and evil. Why? There is no evil at this point. At least when it comes to humanity and the nature of things. How does humanity become familiar with evil? Well, there's only one way to do that, and, and I'm pretty confident it's, 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 not the, it's not that the fruit is endowed with some kind of evil knowledge magic that you take a bite and all of a sudden you know about it. No, I don't think there's any mysticism going on here. I don't think the fruit that's hanging on this tree is somehow different from the fruit hanging on all the other trees. There's just one thing that distinguishes this fruit, and it's the simple fact that God named a tree, and he said, don't eat from that tree. So there's a command attached to that, and it purely comes from God. It's nothing of the nature of the tree. Remember, God created that tree. That tree is good according to God's word. He said, it is very good, everything that I've created, very good, but don't eat from this tree. He's providing a command and an opportunity for humankind to to break that command and i think god knows it's going to happen and i think even the creation of that command the giving of that command that is good and when humanity breaks that command god is working it out for good why because everything that god created and everything that god set in motion he called from the beginning very good so i think when it comes to knowing good and evil Humanity can only know evil by by doing evil. It's experiential knowledge. And they they know evil when they take from the tree and eat from it because not because the fruit itself somehow is evil knowledge revealer, because that would be weird. That's not a natural way to read the story, but because they're breaking God's command, which makes a lot more sense. Right? So it's not mysticism, it's not magic, it's not wizardry. The natural things of the earth which God put in motion by, by natural law, they're not endowed with, with supernatural revealing power or anything like that. No, man is going to know good and evil. And the serpent's not wrong here. You have to do this in order to know evil, Right? Man is going to know that by experience, by breaking God's command. 
When the woman, this is verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that fruit looks so delicious. Sometimes I think that when I see food in front of me. It looks so delicious. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Mm. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Notice the text doesn't say that the tree is the thing making one wise. But that it is desirable to make one wise. Which means Eve became convinced that this tree would provide wisdom and it became desirable to accomplish that end doesn't mean it would actually accomplish that end disobeying God isn't exactly the wisest thing a person can do right she the woman took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband who was with her and he So Adam, here we learn Adam's not absent during this whole ordeal. Adam has been given the the direct command to be God's representative ruler on the earth. We've seen that man is that direct representative ruler, the the one who represents God in relation to his creation, in relation to humanity, and, and the woman is the one who represents all of humanity in this relationship between God and humanity and First Corinthians, Paul calls the man the head of the wife, like Christ is the head of a, a man, right? So Christ is the head of the church, Christ is the head of a man, the man is the head of a, a woman. So he's playing on that, what we read in Genesis chapter two. If Adam was present, sh- should he not have been the one communicating with the serpent? Now, the serpent bypassed. Adam, uh, like, like the serpent, in, when we're being tempted, so to speak, right, goes right to our desires, the desires of humanity. Adam should have been the one reasoning with the serpent and warding off the serpent here, but he was, he was silent. Not only was he silent, but he gave in to sin, disobedience to God, evil, when his wife offered him a bite. Adam here failed to be his wife's redeemer. And that's what he was to be, right? From the beginning, we're reading that he's failing. Like, like if she eats the fruit... And now she's carrying this death sentence, which she knows she carries now, and and Adam knows she carries now. Should he not have, like, petitioned God and said, take me instead? But he didn't do that. Instead, he sinned with her. Gave in with her. He, He failed. He failed to accomplish his purpose. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. I'm pretty sure they already knew they were naked physically, okay? It's just the definition of the word. They were just, it was, it was shameless, right? There was nothing shameful about it. But now all of a sudden, like, they become aware of spiritual nakedness. 
They're not adorned. They're not established. Their spirit is now shamed, darkened by sin. And as the spirit is ashamed and darkened by sin, exposed as unrighteous, the body feels just just shameful and, and dirty, right? Even secular people know what it's like to to feel exposed and and dirty because of because of thoughts or because of actions or because of whatever and and most people do try to hide it away. So they sewed fig leaves together. They made they made themselves clothes, loin coverings to cover up not necessarily just physical nakedness, but to try to cover up shame, which you can't do, right? You can't just pull a hood over your head or wear a mask or, or hide in a crowd or, or become a hermit and, and hide shame. You can't hide that shame oozes from our, our spirits and from our bodies if we are in sin. But they try they try to cover it up. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, this is a pretty cool detail in this story. Oh, you read it in the Hebrew, and, and quite literally it reads, They heard the voice of Yahweh God walking in the garden. And the Hebrew gives, gives personhood to the voice of God. Talking about the voice of God like the voice of God is a character in the story. Okay, And the voice of God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, so around evening time, here comes this, this person of the Godhead, the voice of God. Fast forward to John chapter 1, what do we read? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the beginning. Nothing was made without the Word, and everything was made through Him, Right? In chapter 1, we have already seen the person of God we refer to as the Father, and we've seen the person of God we refer to as the Spirit explicitly there, and kind of insinuated was God speaking and the Word of God there, but now the voice of God makes an explicit appearance in the text. This is the pre-incarnate Christ walking in the garden, and this is so important because the dialogue here in chapter 3, this is between Jesus and Adam. This voice of God has particular presence. Jesus, through the Old Testament and in the New, he has particular presence. So the Spirit of God, as we saw in Genesis chapter 1, was uh, omnipresent over the surface of the waters, the whole earth, all at once. And, And here is a different person of the Godhead, and he has particular presence. He is walking in the garden. He's present in one location, and he's looking for humanity. So, So here's another apologetic note, right? If God is omnipresent, how could he be walking in the garden? If God cannot be seen, if God is only spirit, how could he be walking in the garden? But there are three persons of the Trinity. There's the Father, who is never seen, who cannot be seen, cannot be searched, right? There's a spirit who can be felt but not seen. He is omnipresent. 
And there's Jesus, the word of God, who can be seen and heard in his particular presence. It's very important to maintain a Trinitarian theology because without a Trinitarian theology, even chapters 1 through 3 here make zero sense. And people talk about God like he's one person and then all of a sudden things contradict because, oh, God can't be seen or searched, but Moses saw him, right? Or... Or, how could God appear here in the garden and walk if he can't be seen or searched out? No, the Father cannot be searched out. The Son has particular presence. He can be seen and heard and felt. And most often when we are interacting with God, we are interacting with either the person of the Son or the person of the Spirit directly. Now, there there are inseparable works of God. All the work that God does is all the persons of the Trinity working in conjunction with one another because you can't separate the essence of God, right? But here we see Jesus walking in the garden in the evening, his, his daily stroll through his garden enjoying his creation but today something is different the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh Elohim the Lord God they're identifying this particular person the voice of God as Yahweh God himself he is he is God and is with God in the beginning. We see that here. But the man and his wife, they hid themselves from his presence. They hide themselves among the trees of the garden, and the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, in the person of Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, called to the man, Adam, where are you? He probably knew where Adam was. I'm just saying. This is a question that refers to, I think, more than just physical location, like, where are you, Adam? You know, like we would ask, do you like where you are in your life? I'm not talking about physical location. I think the question Jesus is asking here is the same kind of question. Adam, where are you? And Adam replies, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden. the voice of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked I was ashamed exposed my spirit has been darkened so I hid from you and that's, that's what we still do not necessarily behind trees physically but we lose ourselves in our work we lose ourselves in our home life in our hobbies we lose ourselves in self-pity. We lose ourselves in sickness. We lose ourselves in books and movies and entertainment and video games, all to distract us from Christ because we know we don't measure up. What's the point in going to church? What's the point in being religious? I don't measure up anyway. You're never going to change me, right? That's the attitude. 
I, I can't even change myself. How are you going to change me? You can't make me a righteous person. You can't make me religious. What's the point in me even going and sitting under your teaching and trying to be a part of this community that's pretending to be perfect? What's the point? First of all, it's not who we are, right? Second of all, the point is revealed next. Adam hid himself. And Jesus said, who told you that you were naked? Okay, who else is around to tell Adam that he's naked? Well, the serpent didn't tell him. There's no one around to tell Adam he's naked. And like I said, I'm pretty sure he knew he was naked physically. There's just no shame with that. But, but now this question is deeper, right? This is spiritual. This is emotional. Who told you that you were unrighteous? Who told you that your spirit was depraved? Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you haven't been adorned yet, established yet as the, as the, as the fullness and the, and the perfection of the image that, that I created you to be? Who told you that? When we use the term unrighteous in Christianity, we have to understand exactly what that means. Paul gets at this in the book of Romans. But to be unrighteous isn't just to be evil and despicable and deplorable from a human point of view, right? But sometimes it comes out that way, right? To be unrighteous is something different. It's something in our, our nature, something in the way that we were created. So we think about the creation of humankind, and God does what? Creates humankind in his image. Now tell me this, is God righteous? Yes. Paul in Romans says he's the only righteous one. Jesus, no one is good but God. Right? And that included Adam and Eve. He's not talking about a goodness there as a matter of creation. He's talking about a, a goodness of nature. So God created humanity in his image, which means humanity is going to have some semblance of righteousness. Some semblance of of perfection there. Some, some semblance of sinlessness, some, some, some semblance of, of being self, self-reliant and self-sufficient and independent, some semblance of that in the creation of humanity. But humanity is not God. Humanity is the image of God. And so humanity has the image of God's righteousness, not God's righteousness, if that makes any sense at all. And not having the righteousness of God, but having something that's like the righteousness of God, humanity would strive to be self-sufficient, would strive to seek, seek knowledge on her own, would strive to seek wisdom and to grow and to gain a place for herself, to, to work, to become good. Now that sounds like the gospel some are presenting, doesn't it? In order to be good before God, you must do something. You must pray a prayer, you must be baptized, you must dress a certain way, act a certain way, use a certain set of words, and for God's sake, stay away from that stuff. That's the serpent's gospel. Go take from that tree. You have to eat that fruit if you want to be like God. In order to be like God, you must do it yourself, but that's impossible because we don't have God's righteousness. We have the image of his righteousness. So, so what ends up coming out, or what ends up being revealed the first time we act to try and 
pursue our own righteousness, a righteousness that, that is of ourselves, what comes out is, is sin. And that sin reveals our nature, which is un, unrighteous, and it reveals our depravity. It reveals our nakedness before God. And it is, it is shameful. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And there it is. It's not just this tree with this magical fruit that will reveal stuff to you. It's, have you eaten from the tree? I commanded you. That's the key word there. I commanded you not to eat from. Have you broken my command and thus had your unrighteousness revealed? This is part of God's plan all along, right? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I Adam had another chance here. Jesus, take me. Kill me. Let me take my wife's place if that is at all possible, which at this point is not possible. Right? He joined her in her sin. But he didn't even do that. Instead, he blamed his wife. Worse than that, he blamed God because God is the one who put the woman there. God, the, the woman you put here with me, caused this blame game God it's your fault you let us into this and God said to the woman what is this you have done so the woman is culpable culpable too right and the woman said the serpent deceived me and I ate casting blame again to the serpent the serpent didn't deceive her. Remember, she corrected the serpent. She knew the consequences of her actions. Okay? The serpent was certainly crafty, but Eve knew exactly what she was doing. The serpent is a deceiver, but Eve had the ability to reason through that. But she chose what was desirable to her rather than obedience to God. And that being said, next week we're going to see the, the consequences, right? But this, this is original sin. And this is why we see some of the darkness we see in the world. This is why people are so resistant to the proper teaching of God's of God's word. This is why people are so resistant to any kind of sincere form of gathering for believers. This is why the world runs from God. This is why families experience heartache. What we see there, the first, the first, the first marriage quarrel, right? Adam blames his wife, and, and his wife blames the serpent. It's the blame game going all the way around. Adam and Eve at this point are, are spiritually dead and ashamed. And they made coverings for themselves, but obviously those coverings aren't good enough because the shame is still there. But I have, I have good news. What is Jesus doing already in Genesis chapter 3? The same day that Adam and Eve broke his law. He came searching for them. 
They became lost, and Jesus came to find them. This is the good news, because even here in Genesis 3, we can see we can't do anything to be righteous. We can't. We are lost, and that's what it means to be lost, right? I can't do anything to become righteous. I can't do anything to find my own way. I can't do anything to get to heaven, to get to God, to experience eternal life. I can't do anything to, 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 to live a, a satisfying and fulfilled life because everything that I try to do doesn't get me there. Prayer does not get me there. Hard work doesn't get me there. Trying to be a good enough person doesn't get me there. I am dissatisfied. Trying to redefine who I am doesn't get me there. Trying to define myself according to society's standards doesn't get me there. I can't get there. And there are religious people like the Catholic Church and like several Protestant churches and denominations and like the the health, wealth, and prosperity movement that that tell you, hey, you want to be a good person? You want to be in God's good graces? Do these things. This is how you become a good person. This is how you become pleasing to God. Practice the sacraments. Go to confession. Attend Attend mass, right? Pray a prayer. Give enough money and God will, will repay you a hundredfold, you do this, and the outcome is your salvation. But even here in chapter 3, we see it's not possible. Adam failed. Eve failed. They were ashamed. They hid. They were lost. Jesus came to find them. That's how this works. Jesus came to find them. From the third chapter in the first book of the Bible, we know this. Jesus goes to find his people. That's how this works. And the entire Bible is written based upon that premise. Jesus goes to find his people. And that is good news because I would have never been able to do that. I can't find Jesus. He's not lost. (laughs) He came and found me, ripped me from the grip of darkness, gave me a new heart so that I don't love the darkness anymore. Amen? Amen.